Friends, we've got some really important things to share today. When I do, I think your eyes will be open and you'll say, yes, this is it. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, we must seize this moment. We must step back and get God's perspective on what is happening in America today. We are truly in unprecedented times, and there is a divine perspective on what is happening in our society. We dare not miss it. We must seize the moment. This is Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH. 866-348-7884. In particular, in terms of callers, I would love to continue some of the conversation we're having about race issues in America and larger things that we are going through together as a country. doesn't mean I won't respond to some other calls, general Bible calls and things like that, but for the most part, I'll tell you where I'd like this discussion to go. All right, let me give you some perspective and, and friends, may I encourage you, when the show's over, to contact your friend and share the, the link with them. If you're listening on radio, then you can just refer them to our website, AskDrBrown.org, or to our YouTube channel, ASKDRBrown, AskDrBrown on YouTube. But I, I want to give a larger perspective because the things we're going to talk about today, friends, are very, very important. I lived through the 60s. You know, there's an old saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Yeah, it takes a while to get that one for some. But I was born in 55, and it is generally regarded that the most tumultuous year in the 60s was 68. Now, different ones were tumultuous for different reasons. And, and 63 was tumultuous with the assassination of JFK. And 69 was tumultuous with Woodstock and Stonewall riots and, and many, many other things. But 68 stands as a unique year, the most tumultuous of the tumultuous 60s. So I turned 13 that year. So I was bar mitzvahed, but that was more of a social event for me because we weren't religious Jews. It was not so much a spiritual event. The event that really impacted me when I was 13 in 1968 was seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert and the whole power of rock music and the breaking the... The, the norms sh- shattering the, the status quo and the outrageousness of it and the sound and the outfits and then, of course, the, the drug scene with it and all that. So by the time I was 14, I was getting high and playing in a rock band and, and the whole bit. I, I got caught up in that whole scene, the counterculture revolution in the 60s. And 68 was the year of, of the May Revolution in France. 68 was the year of, of Prague Spring and Czechoslovakia. 68 was the year of, of a, a Tlatelco massacre in Mexico and some of our athletes holding up their fists for the Black Panther salute in the Olympics in Mexico. But most notably, it was the year when Dr. King was assassinated. So here you have the respected leader of the civil rights movement, uh, a, a man that has no equal in America today. There's no one that fits his role, just like there's no one that fits Billy Graham's role 
There's no one that fits Martin Luther King's world. There, there is no equivalent to him in our day today. So he was a towering giant in the civil rights movement, assassinated by a white man. So that riots all over America, outrage, chaos, all over America. We've not had something on this level across the nation. There were riots say, with, the, with Rodney King and things like that in, in, in L.A., what, early 90s. But we haven't had anything like the 68 riots until now. And then a few months after that, Robert F. Kennedy assassinated. And he was considered a close ally of the civil rights movement. It was a time of massive upheaval. So much else going on in the 60s. Now, I'm talking about the 60s to, to get to today. And then, uh, 71, I got radically saved. You say, was there a connection? Yes, 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 there was. Because in the chaos of the 60s, in the rebellion of the 60s, in the anti-war movement of the 60s, in the anti-establishment movement of the 60s, in the challenging of the status quo, the massive generation gap, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all of that, there was also a deep spiritual searching. People were asking questions. People were saying that there must be more to life. And look, here's the common conversation, whether it happened like this verbatim, the thought process did happen over and over again in the 60s. The kid basically asked mom and dad, why do you push me so hard in school? Why do you want me to do so well in school? Well, that's obvious. So you can get, get into the best college. Well, why don't I want to get into the best college? Well, that's obvious. So you can get the best job. Well, why do I need the best job? So you can put your kids in the best school so they can get into the best college, so they can get the best job, so they can put their kids in the best school, so they can, it's like, wait, 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 wait. Isn't there more to life than that? Young people were asking existential questions. Look, the assassination of JFK shook the nation. It gave a tremendous feeling of disorientation. The Beatles coming to America in 64, this whole, this part of this whole new thing in this, this growing generation gap that was this deeper than before. The Vietnam War, young people, young men being shipped over to Vietnam to die for what? And coming back, not as heroes, but as rejects. What, what's happening to our young people? What, can't vote, we're being shipped over to Vietnam. I mean, these are some of the feelings, right? And the frustration. And then you have, you know, 1960, the birth control pill kind of comes in quietly, and now you can have sex for recreation. You don't have to worry about sex for procreation so much. And then, of course, organized public prayer taken out of school, 62, organized Bible reading taken out in 63. Some of these things having a symbolic effect more than anything. It is a time of great upheaval, social unrest. The positive rise of the civil rights movement, 63, was also the March on Washington and the, the famous I Have a Dream speech of Dr. King. So you have the challenge of the status quo there in a positive way, the challenge in other ways that may be more neutral and, and other ways unhealthy, other things that were challenging the status quo, the whole rebellion thing, and, and now drugs flooding the, the, the states. It's not, it's not just in the inner city now, it's in the suburbs. A time of great upheaval, but in the midst of it, and many of you who live through it remember, there was a constant spiritual searching. There was an asking of existential questions. There was a wondering about why are we here and what's the purpose of life? Well, the American dream. You know, my parents came over as immigrants, is what your folks are telling you, and they had very little and they worked hard. Now we've got a nice house in the suburbs here and we want you to have the same and even better. And there's many things admirable about that, especially when you come over as immigrants and have to scratch and fight your way just to, to make a living and get accepted in the society, become part of the mainstream. You want something better for your kids. But then people are saying, what was it for? 
So it was assumed, basically assumed, traditional religion, traditional religion did not have any real meaning. But Eastern religion, I was the ooh, the guru, the Maharishian, ooh, and transcendental meditation, and oh, that's that's different. But then Jesus was also perceived as, as pretty cool. I mean, religion, Christianity is no good, but this Jesus guy was like a rebel. He was counterculture. He was pretty cool. I like him. And long-haired hippie, yeah, I like kind of the sandals and do they have beads? And so there was that appeal there. But I'm just telling you that what, what my friends and I did was happening around America. We sit around, get high, and talk about spiritual things. We'd wonder about the meaning of life. And okay, our, yes, our thinking was warped with drugs. And, and I remember discovering the secret of the universe while high on drugs and diesel gas, huffing diesel gas, I discovered the secret of the universe. Yeah, so our, for those that don't get it, I'm being facetious. I thought I did. I mean, I was in a drug-crazed stupor. Okay, so point of fact, point of fact, our thinking was warped, our thinking was often perverted, and it was often flesh-driven, and yet people were asking deeper questions and looking for the meaning of life behind the rebellion, behind the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, behind the generation gap, behind the anti-war movement, behind a lot of that was a spiritual search. Sadly, for the most part, most of the churches did not recognize what was happening. They saw the rebellion. Many thought, this is it. This is the final apostasy. Jesus coming any minute. The prophecies are falling into place. Many missed what was happening. But in the midst of it, people were praying and crying out. Lo and behold, 67 starts in San Francisco. Large numbers of hippies start getting saved. I mean, the trickle quickly becomes a stream. The stream quickly becomes a flood. By the early 70s, all around the world, hippies, radicals, rebels are having radical conversion experiences. I was one of them. My fellow band members, they were, they were among them right before me. Other friends in high school, one after another, come into faith. The first year I was saved, I, I brought at least 40 people from my high school, at least 40 people from my high school to a service. They, they visit, come, would check things out. A few generally got saved. A number stayed for a little while. Others rejected, but people were looking. People were searching. This is when like the Hare Krishna movement took off. Uh, a Sanskrit scholar, Hindu scholar, comes over from India feeling he's supposed to come and impart Krishna consciousness to youth in America, bases himself in New York City, and it's right in the epicenter of the whole counterculture revolution on the East Coast. And boom, he suddenly has a, a, an army of disciples. One of their leaders told me, oh, about 10, 12 years ago, he told me that at the height of the movement, 75% of the world leaders were Jews. Why? Because there are all these Jewish hippies and radicals in New York City and got drawn to his teaching and they became his devotees and then became high up disciples and leaders in the movement. You say, okay, that's the 60s. Now, now look, I've taught on this for years. Every year for probably 20 years, I've been teaching about what happened in the 60s and about the counterculture revolution and about so much of the church missing what happened in the counterculture revolution and then what was called the Jesus Revolution. Look, Time Magazine, April 1966, cover story, Is God Dead? Five years later, June 1971, cover story, The Jesus Revolution. So I've been talking about this, talking about the church 
didn't recognize what was happening spiritually in the counterculture revolution, didn't recognize what was happening when the Jesus movement came out, the Jesus revolution, we came flocking into churches and the many churches didn't recognize something unique happening and there, there weren't adequate new wineskins for the new wine or, or fathers for this young movement and so many fell away. Now we are in a similar moment. Friends, we are in a similar moment and it is harvest time. It is time for us to unite around Jesus and bring the message of reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, hope, eternal life, eternal purpose to a searching, hurting, lost society. There's anger, there's grief, there's protest. Behind it, there's something deeper. My guest Steve Ugin yesterday said, we're, we're looking at generations of fatherless children that need a heavenly father. And more. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Going to go to the phones in a minute. Please hear me. We must deal with issues that we must deal with. Where there is injustice, where there is inequality, we must deal with those issues. We don't ignore those issues. Just like the question of the Vietnam War was, was nothing that we could ignore. And it ended up being a tragic war and one that ultimately we lost our way in. We weren't even trying to win at a certain point. So many lives lost, so many destroyed in a lasting way. Uh, terribly tragic. And, and again, I'm no foreign policy expert, but simply stated, there were major questions that were being asked that were not just existential, they were practical. They thought, what about the war? What happens if I'm drafted? But we must also look at the deeper issues, the issues behind the scenes, God's perspective. Have, have you ever had someone really angry with you and your response is to get angry back with them and suddenly you get an insight, they're angry because they feel hurt. They want your approval and affirmation so much and they feel hurt by you that they're lashing out. But what they really want is to say, I think the world of you, I think you're amazing. I remember getting spat in the face by an Orthodox Jew. And when was it? Remembering where I lived. I happened to reference it a few weeks ago. So it was the early 1980s. I was on my way into uh, to grad school, NYU, I was standing by the train station. I had my Hebrew Bible out. I was reading it. Orthodox Jewish man came over, seen me read the Hebrew Bible, greeted me, Shalom Aleichem, and we began to talk. Immediately told him I was a believer, so he wanted to sit right next to me, and he was quite hostile with me being a believer, which I understand his perspective. And at one point, he got so mad, he was trying to provoke me. He spat in my face. We were here on the train, sitting next to each other on the Long Island Railroad. He spat in my face. And, and I just felt the love of God for him, and I said, you know, you really love me. You, as a Jew, you are so upset with me. You think as a Jew that I've, I've done the wrong thing. You really love me. You care about me. And I want you to know I love you too. I, I wasn't trying to provoke him by being snarky. I genuinely wrote, what, this guy really loves me. This, he spat my face. It's because he loved me as a Jew and he felt I was terribly misguided. I was misguiding others. What's God see when he looks down? What, what does God see in the midst of the protests? We'll put protests over here. 
and riots will put them over here. Now, forget about the opportunistic thieves. I don't mean they can't be saved, but I'm reading reports, haven't been able to verify anything, but eyewitnesses, New York, saying that people are driving up in luxury cars, even her driving up in a Rolls Royce, opening the door with looters prepared with everything they need to break into stores, etc., and then they're picking them up later. So you have opportunistic thieves, and you definitely have troublemakers, and you have race baiters on all sides. So you've got people with bad intentions that need to repent, humble themselves, and get right with God. Even behind that, though, I'm sure there's something that God sees in terms of their souls that can be redeemed. But there's a larger picture of the pain, of the frustration, of the disorientation, of, to repeat, generations of fatherless homes. And there is, there is a looking for meaning and a looking for purpose and a looking for justice and a looking for righteousness and even a yearning to fix a system that in itself will never be perfectly fixed because we're in a fallen world. There is no perfect country on this planet. We do our best to make positive change. But there's no perfect country on this planet. And yet, from an evangelistic perspective, the harvest is ripe. From the evangelistic perspective, how about we do this? How about we unite together to fight racism wherever it exists? Okay. All right. I'm I'm not going to judge you. You don't judge me. No presuppositions because of skin color background. But we agree wherever there is racism, let's unite to fight it. Can we all say that? Yes. And let's put our differences about the president voting for him, not voting for him. Let's put that aside. We can cast our vote in November. All right. Let's put that aside. And let's bring Jesus to a hurting generation. Let's say we have answers to the deeper questions. And the ultimate act of injustice was the Son of God paying for our sins on the cross, and he did it willingly that we can be forgiven. Now, how will we respond? and, And some of it can't be translated directly, but if we have compassionate hearts and are full of the Spirit, we can see a harvest, the likes of which we have never seen. Greater than the Jesus People Movement, greater than the harvest in our history. We we gotta we gotta stay on topic though, friends. We've got to stay on topic. So we do not ignore race issues. Let us stand together to fight racism. Can we all agree on that? Let's not fight over politics right now. Let, let's President Trump can fight for himself. All right, let's pray for him. Pray for others. Pray for God's best in the November elections and vote accordingly. Vote your conviction. But let's focus on the gospel. And harvest, friends, if we do this, something can happen, the likes of which will stagger us. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Maryland. Andrew, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Mike. Hello, Dr. Mike. Dr. Brown, it's great to be on the show again. Thanks. What's on your mind? Well... This has been a very tough time for all of us indeed, and I tend to be a bit of a bridge builder, so I kind of understand where many people are coming from, because as for me, I'm an African-American community, so a lot of this has been, with George Floyd, a lot of this has been grieving me as well, so I understand that. Well, at the same time, well, at the same time I, with me being a bridge builder, I kind of see where I, I kind of feel a little, with me being a bridge builder, there's like so much I've noticed how hard it is for people all over. In fact, I have a friend who I con I have a friend who I contacted who, uh, who who was a former police officer, 
who was a former police officer, and we have gone to church, and she's a really great person, and I mm-hmm. sent her a text saying, I love her, and I care about her and her family, and no matter what happens, we are overcomers through Jesus. And I also sent it to, like, a, I also told that to a few other friends who are in, in my skin color. So I, for me, I tend to be a bridge builder, so in that way. And I notice it's pretty hard all over. And another thing is that I sometimes I think this is a, I've noticed a lot that with other issues like abortion and even homosexuality, some people are like, preach Christ and reach out to the people, but in other times when it's like racism, it's like, just preach Christ. And I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, I I, I just, you know, Andrew, that's, and that's a good point to focus on for a moment. And that's why I said we, let's unite to fight racism wherever it is. Hopefully every American of conscience would agree. We're not presupposing anything. We're not saying who's guilty or not. We're saying, can we agree on that and not ignore real issues and real concerns? All right. Just like I would hope we all agree that the anarchy and chaos of, of the riots does far more harm than good. And let's stand with law enforcement to, to, to push back against the craziness while saying, yeah, let's, let's not just preach Jesus as if that doesn't interact with social justice. Let's just preach Jesus and then not think about abortion. Or, no, no. Let's look at the issues. Let's do something that's right on the issues. And let's keep the gospel front and center. And the gospel does touch on the meaning of life and the meaning of marriage and the meaning of family and justice as well. Hey, Andrew, I know it's difficult, but keep building bridges. Keep building bridges. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Arizona. June, welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, I don't usually call in, but I was really stirred by your introduction. And I'm a slow learner because my question in asking what's the meaning of life happened in 1973, and it was just around the time of Jesus Christ Superstar as well. I'm Jewish, and I was married 10 years, and I called out to the Lord, and He answered me, and uh, our life was turned upside down. We were married, and I had three children, and God called my husband into service for Him, and we moved to a Christian community. And I just wanted to share one or two things. Um, we raised two black children. And uh, Derek was four years old when he came to live with us. And when he was about six years old, I was helping him with his hair. And he said to me, you know, June, White people are much nicer than black people. I said, Derek, that's not true. He said, oh, yes, Jim. Oh, I know. That's the truth. And I said to him, Derek, every heart of every man, woman, and child is the same. And we all need Jesus. And when Jesus changes our heart and life, he gives us his love 
and he gives us his nature when we ask for it. And color of skin is not what makes someone nice or not nice. It's the condition of one's heart that brings the love of God or the hatred of Satan. And that's really why I wanted to call in that all the race issues are spiritual in nature. And and let me just jump in. We've got a break. And by the way, June, great to hear from your old family friend and uh, friends with great friends with the, the three kids as well hey you and your dear husband whose name you didn't mention keep up the great work and let's recognize ultimately we have a common enemy the devil common enemy let's unite against him oh god of burning cleansing flame send the fire it's the line of fire with your host dr michael brown your voice of moral cultural and spiritual revolution here again is dr michael brown Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. This is Michael Brown, your voice of moral sanity and spiritual clarity in the midst of a society in chaos and a church all too often in compromise. I don't see the vast, 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 vast majority of comments that are posted on our social media pages. They amount to multiplied tens of thousands every month. It could be 50 or 100,000 comments in, in a month. So obviously I'm not going to see the vast, vast majority. But in reference to an article that I just posted right before the show that's gone on numerous different sites, talking about getting God's perspective on what's happening in the protests, the riots, a divine perspective on the protests and riots. It's up on stream.org and at sdrbrown.org and other sites. Uh, to my shock, I would say, I noticed a comment from one woman. Now, maybe she'll pull it later, so I'm not going to quote her by name on on our Facebook page. Your attempt to shift attention from the cold-blooded murder of a black man in broad daylight due to systemic racism is noted. And then she goes on, yeah, agreeing with stuff that I wrote and have begun to see more balance in your contributions than I saw earlier, and you were corrected a Christ-centered approach is our only solution. But um, what in the world is she talking about my attempt to shift attention from the cold-blooded murder of a Mac, uh, cold-blooded murder of a black man in broad daylight due to systemic racism as noted now in fact we don't know why he was killed we don't know but in fact we do not know what was in the mind of the officer apparently had worked together he may have hated george floyd for other reasons he may have been in some sick power thing we don't know we know it was a horrific act we know that according to all the evidence we have, it was murder, okay? That is in front of our eyes. And we know that there are other acts that are clearly race-based. So we unite together around the murder of George Floyd. We, we unite together around that and, and stand up for racial justice, even if his specific case was not racially motivated. We don't know. You don't know what's in somebody's heart. You don't know. We, we don't know what's going on, okay? God knows. God knows. E- either way, he should be prosecuted and fairly prosecuted to the full extent of the law, all right? But the idea that when we talk about deeper solutions, 
when we talk about God's perspective, when we talk about bringing the gospel into this situation while standing against racism and standing for justice, when we do that, to then be told, and again, I don't see vast, vast, you know, maybe out of every 100,000 comments, maybe I see 50, I don't know, 20, in terms of actually reading them, looking at them. But to be told that I am shifting attention away from the murder of a black man in broad daylight due to systemic racism is completely bogus. And it makes me wonder, with all that we seek to do, to speak up, to speak out, to stand for justice, to raise uncomfortable questions for everybody. I'm not trying to prove that I'm woke. I've been talking about that enough. Not prove that I, I'm not fragile white man. I don't, I don't think like that. This is immaterial to me. I'm a child of God, period. That's, that's what's an issue to me. And where I have blind spots because I'm American or because I'm male or because I'm Jewish or because I'm a follower of Jesus, read the Bible a certain way, or because I'm white or whatever. Help me with my blind spots and I'll help you with yours because trust me, you got as many as I do. All right? But, you know, we got to do better than this, friends. Here you have someone trying to stand for what's right and help and at the same time bring God's redemptive solution at hand. Oh, no, you can't do that because that's shifting attention from the murder of George Floyd. It's not shifting attention. It's saying let us continue to deal with these issues while looking at wider solutions. So just my little wow. And yeah, I, I've been dealing with folks, Twitter and elsewhere, where it's like whatever you do, whatever you say is not enough. Hey, bottom line, I do not suffer from any white guilt. Don't. I'm here to do what I can as a child of God, regardless of skin color, to honor the Lord and stand for righteousness, stand for truth, stand for justice, and bring the gospel to everybody. And where I have blind spots, as I said, you help me. Where you have blind spots, I'll help you. Great. Let's do it. But the trips people lay at each other and all this, like, oh, come on. We can do better than this. Are we going to help each other? Are we going to pull each other down? Let's stand together and make a positive difference. 866-34-TRUTH. Um, I tell you what. I'm going to change subjects in a moment, but I want to say one more thing. I want to say one more thing. Let us not make the mistake we made in the 1960s and look primarily at the outward side of things. This is what I've been hitting and hammering and saying. Let us not primarily look at the outward side of things, anger, protest, mass demonstrations. Let us look at what is going on behind that, what is in the hearts of people. And even those looting and stuff, I'm not just a professional thief that's looking for a way to steal, all right, or just a compulsive thief, but others. Why the violence? Why the outcry? Yeah, it's it's always wrong to do those things. What's going behind it? Just like the rebellion of the 60s was wrong, just like the drug use of the 60s was wrong, just like the promiscuity of the 60s was wrong. But behind all of that, there was something else deeper. That we've got to see that, friends. We've got to be like sons of Issachar. Second Chronicles 
chapter, excuse me, First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, that the sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We, we want to be like the sons of Issachar. That's what we want to be. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Cincinnati. Connor, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for calling. Hey, Dr. Brown. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Hey, so um, the question that I've been struggling with for a few weeks now, um, it seems like it's a biblical and theological contradiction that I'd love to get your thoughts on and hopefully clear things up for me. Yep. Um, in Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11, I have understood these to be referring to a bride of price contract, um, basically establishing that concubines are allowed. Now, as far as I understand, this was set up for the purposes of prolonging the Israelites, since the mortality rate was very, was very low. And the problem that I face with that is that this is essentially a God-sanctioned law that violates the sanctity of marriage. So my question is, why would God establish a law that seems to go against one of his original Ten Commandments if he could have just intervened in the birthing success rate of the Jewish people and multiply them like he said he would in the Abrahamic Covenant? Right. So why did Jesus say that divorce was given? Because that's a direct assault on the sanctity of marriage and life. Um, why was divorce given? By Moses. What did Jesus say? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head right now. Ah, all right. So let me read it to you, okay? Yeah. Matthew chapter 19, because you ask a wonderful question, all right? Why would God establish something in his perfect law that was far from perfect? So there was a dispute at that time in the Pharisaical camps about divorce. Could you divorce your wife for any and every reason or only for, for adultery, sexual immorality? So uh, they asked Jesus about it, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So they said to him, Why then? did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So he's saying there's a, there's a divine accommodation because of human weakness and human sin. And it's to say that although there are eternal standards in God's law, which are then reinforced either before the law and or after the law, like murder is universally wrong, period. There may be justification in killing in a war or, or self-defense, but murder is always wrong. So that, that's laid out before the law, laid in, in the law, in the prophets, in the New Testament. And for example, homosexual practice is, is always wrong. That's not just in the law, it's reiterated by Jesus, it's reiterated by Paul, and it's laid out in creation in terms of male-female union. But there are other things right. that are in the law that are divine accommodations, even aspects of slavery that were far from ideal, but they were accommodations to the culture and, and bettering the cultural standards and, and pointing to liberation. But there are things like that. And uh, any, any laws sanctioning polygamy, like Deuteronomy 17, that the king could have a few wives, but not too many, <laughs> That was an accommodation to human weakness as well. Right. Okay. Let's clear that from me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Th and thank you for the question. I appreciate you asking. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let us go to Michael in Brooklyn. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me? 
Uh, are you speaking right into the phone, sir? Um, hold on, hold on. I have y'all speaker. Ah, yeah, it's the the cardinal Hello? sin not to commit on radio. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, Doctor Brown. Um, so Viasinger pointed out that in the Messianic age, the Messiah will bring a bull as a sin offering on behalf of himself and the Israelites to atone for the sins and sacrifices, and the laws will resume. And that's found in Ezekiel 45 to 46. So if Jesus is really the sinless Messiah, sinless Messiah, whose sacrifice atones for all sin, and he's the fulfillment of all the laws, why does Messiah have to offer sacrifices to atone for his sin? He doesn't. Sin? doesn't mention the Messiah. Ezekiel 45, 46 has nothing to do with the Messiah. So, so who is the prince that is talking about? Because doesn't the Messiah... Isn't the Messiah the only person to enter, to enter through the East Gate? No, first thing, if that Ezekiel's temple was originally a prophecy for the exiles upon the return from Babylon, which never happened, and it's completely different than the, 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 the Torah dimensions and things, so it presents many, many contradictions. But if, in fact, it's speaking of a future millennial temple, there would be a Davidic prince on the earth that's, that's officiating and things. doesn't mention the Messiah. doesn't say a word about the Messiah. That's that's so, just someone reading it into the text to try to yeah. When it speaks of Davidic prince, why would he even call him a prince? No, it's not the Messiah for sure. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It kinda, yeah, it's it it's messed, easy to it it's, messed me up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it, Michael, it's one of those things, and I've been in debates where somebody will raise something, and I'm ready. It's like, wait a second, it doesn't say that. Yeah, so we widely understand as as followers of Jesus that that's not a prophecy about the Messiah. Just like Zerubbabel was a descendant of David that served in a certain capacity of being the king. Same here. So it's not the Messiah. To far too many buyer with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us. I'm Lana Fire. Yeah, we are your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. That's what we have been about since the first day on radio. Gospel-based cultural transformation, gospel-based upheaval, which brings with it pro-life, which brings with it pro-justice, which brings with it pro-family, which brings with it many other things, but it is gospel-based, it is prayer-based, it is Jesus-centered, and out of that, we can holistically deal with the issues that we need to deal with. Hey, to Michael in Brooklyn, I, I may comment a little bit more on your question about Ezekiel and the prince there on tomorrow's broadcast on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, so make sure you listen because I may come back to that. No need to call in, but I may come back to that topic. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to, boy, uh, I don't have a, is this Selma or are you in Selma? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Selma. Selma, where are, uh, where are you? I'm calling from San Francisco, California. Got it. Okay, yes, yeah, somehow just in the flood of calls, our call screener missed that. I just saw Selma on the board. I thought, hmm, is that Selma, oh. Alabama? Or is, so Selma from San Francisco. Thank you for calling. Yeah. Glad we got that sorted out. Thank you for answering. Um, but yeah, I was just calling real quick about uh, uh, 
the account where Jesus is cleansing the temple, but I see some people using that to justify the violence and the protest, saying yep. that, well, if he could do that, we can do that. And I just want to get that clear. I don't know how to explain it. I don't think it's right, but... Yeah, yeah of, of course. So I, uh, someone pointed that out. I, I tweeted a response. I, I wrote about it as well. If you look for my recent article at org or at stream.org, uh, look mm-hmm. for my article on four reasons why the, the riots do far more harm than good. All right? Yeah. Uh, but it, okay. in short, first, Jesus did everything in perfect harmony with his Father without any fleshly reaction, often... We don't. That's the first thing. The second thing is he didn't hurt anybody physically. He, d- he did mm-hmm. not beat anyone. He did not shoot anyone. He did not right. steal anything. He, he mm-hmm. did not uh, stop lawful business practices or practitioners from practicing their business. He didn't do yeah. any of, of that. So uh, he didn't right. vandalize anything. There was uh, there was money grubbing and unjust practices that were taking place in the temple. So yeah. he overturns the tables. He drives out the animals with a whip. And mm-hmm. that's what happens. And he's also Jesus, the son of God in his father's house. So what that has to do with someone throwing bricks through a uh, the window of a Target store and going in there and stealing uh, large screen TVs or vandalizing a, a church building or setting it on fire or burning down the, a, a local business or, or, or shooting a cop in the back of the head. I mean, zero yeah. connection whatsoever. Right. And, uh, you know, look, people are going to use the Bible as an excuse now to say, well, Jesus was outraged over certain things. Fine, let's have a holy anger and let's then deal mm-hmm. with it righteously as as. As Paul lays out in, in submission to the law. And, and look, there's, there's nobody stopping us from lawful protests across America. There's nobody yeah. stopping us from raising our voices and, and, and sharing grievances and drawing attention to fee- things that we feel are, are wrong and, and unjust and sinful. And so, nobody's stopping us from that. And in fact, in, in different cities, police are joining in and saying, we're marching yeah. with you. You know, we, we, we hate injustice also. We hate what happened to George Floyd also. We're on your side. So mm. um, let's do it the right way. And, and look, uh, I'm constantly hearing reports and seeing it that the people who are trying to peacefully protest and get a message across are saying yeah. that we're, we're being hijacked and destroyed by these arsonists, by these professional thieves, by, by these outside organizations that are busing people in. You know, people are asking, where, how does the pallet of bricks just appear on the street corner? It wasn't there before. How did it get there? Mm. So a lot of it is organized from the outside. And if it's groups like uh, Antifa and others that have now been branded as domestic terrorists, then let them be viewed as terrorists. Don't let the terrorists and others hijack uh, peaceful protesters uh, under the law sharing their grievances. They have every right to do that. And we understand why there's a depth of grief and, and anger. Let the anger overflow righteously, not unrighteously. And, and let it yeah. not be hijacked by the, the vandals and the thieves and the terrorists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I really appreciate it. That definitely explains everything. Well, great. Yeah. That's, what, that's what we're here for. Thanks for listening, Selma.
Thank you so much. Have a good yeah. day. Bye. You too. 866-34-TRUTH. We go back to New York City. Jim, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, doctor. Thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, have you seen this viral video going around uh, from, I think it's from Houston, and it shows uh, white Christians on their knees um, standing before black Christians standing, and they're praying and asking for forgiveness for all these decades of uh, racial injustice. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, if that's right, or is that biblical? Like, do you think You're right, so here, Paul here is, have done something like that? Here are yeah. two sides to it, Jim, and I appreciate you, you wanting to, to, to be right in God's sight over this. Uh, I've been involved in meetings for many, many years, large meetings with uh, one case up to 300,000 people, where the meetings began with acts just like this, uh, including, okay. in, including asking forgiveness uh, for Native Americans and things like that. And, and here's my principle on this, all right? My, my principle is that, that even if you are not directly involved in, in the guilt in any way, okay, that you have no connection in terms of your own life and you've, you've never been guilty of, of racial injustice in your own life or practice or anything, right? But you happen to be white-skinned. So my perspective is this, and it's the same with anti-Semitism in the church and, and other things like that that have been systemic. If the wound still remains, so as a result of the sins of past generations, the wound still remains, or that sin is still being perpetuated, then I feel I can step in in an intercessory way. Lord, on behalf of those who did sin, on behalf of, of, of those, I, I am asking your forgiveness. So, for example, when I've taught a class on Jewish roots and our students would read through my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, which just came out the new edition last September, uh, inevitably, when the class would end, when we had large student bodies, I'd have a line of students, especially from around the world, and they'd be weeping and say, Dr. Brown, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Well, they didn't do anything. They didn't, they didn't sin against me as a Jew. They, they were not involved in the atrocities in the past. But hearing of it, because they're Christians, and that's like, that's, that's our family. That's our history. Hence the title, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. Okay? So I understand that. And it empowers them when they're sharing the gospel with a Jewish person. The Jewish person brings a past history. They say, look, I have no connection to that. It is so contrary to the spirit of Jesus. But as a Gentile Christian, I want to ask your forgiveness on behalf of the church and show you what a real Christian is like. So for white Christians to do that, if they recognize that blacks in America have been sinned against in various ways, that there has been systemic injustice or unfairness or racism, or wherever you want to couch it, and say, hey, we recognize that now, and on behalf of white America, we want to ask forgiveness, that can be healthy and life-giving and bridge-building, on the one hand. On the other hand, if we are supposed to walk around feeling some white collective guilt, or if we are supposed to walk around thinking there's something wrong with us because we are white Americans, that's when the thing gets into serious error. So to take on something yeah. in an intercessory way of a loving burden by identifying with the plight of others, that can be very healthy. Hey, look, I have preached 
overseas. I have preached overseas as an American, and I've always gone to serve those I've ministered to outside of America, which is about 200 trips outside of America. And the people know I'm not there for their money. I, I'm not there to exploit them. I'm not there to, to take some video and bring it back to say, oh, look at the great things I'm doing. They know I'm there to serve them. But yet, it's happened quite a few times that when I got there, I found out that there was a scandal and that the locals were upset about an American coming in because the last American that came in really bilked them, stayed at a super expensive hotel, left them with a massive bill, didn't live up to any of the expectations and, and so on, and, and left them with a mess. And I've gone in and said, on behalf of the American church, please forgive us. I didn't do the thing. But somebody else from my country was just there, so I, I do that. But I don't feel any guilt because I didn't sin against those people. And, you know, the people calling for massive reparations and all that, I'm, I, I don't believe that's the issue and I don't believe that's the answer. But if I can, in an intercessory way, humble myself and reach out, it can be very moving and powerful because you feel the weight of it. You feel the weight. It can, it can really bring healing. It can really bring life. It can really help. But if it ties in with a collective white guilt and you should all feel it and you're all guilty and so on, then I reject it. So it's the spirit behind it, done in the right spirit, because these things are relevant to this moment. Let it be done for the glory of God as you feel prompted. And not something you do constantly over and over. But let these things be done, but then let something come out of it where we move forward. This has been done many a time in the past. Let's learn what we can and move forward. God bless you.